Fingerboarding is like a chicken Caesar salad. Welcome to the Finger Space Podcast, a weekly show where we will dive deep into the history, stories, and controversies surrounding the fingerboarding community. Welcome to the Finger Space Podcast. I'm your host, Nostalgia FB, and we're excited to be chatting with Johnny of Vaudeville. Don't forget to smash that subscribe button on your streaming platform of choice. This show is sponsored by Finger Space Co., which provides fingerboarding gear for writers of all skill levels and budgets. Don't forget to use code SEASON2 for a 15% off discount on all orders. Johnny, thank you very much for coming on the show. No, it's my pleasure. I really appreciate the invite. Thank you. Of course, of course, of course. You know, you just told me a little bit ago that you listen to the show every now and again. And, you know, the first question that we like to ask all of our guests is how did you hear about and get into fingerboarding? Yeah, I was prepared for this question. You know, my first job when I was 15 was at a Toy Works, KB Toy Works, one of the big ones, not one of the little ones in the mall. I thought I was going to be a stock boy at first. And uh, my first day, my boss says, uh, oh, you're actually our Pokemon gym leader. I, didn't, I had no idea what that meant. Basically, when the card game came out for Pokemon, they set up tournaments for children. So these parents would drop their kids off every Saturday morning. And I was like, the babysitter. And they'd have to beat me for cards and whatnot. And it was a big success. And I say that because when that ended, Tech Deck had come out. So this is like 1998, 1999. And uh, they wanted to keep those kids coming in the store and spending money. And they started the same concept. Uh, I'd set up the parks for them. And, you know, they had me learn how to do it show them. Oh wow. Yeah. So I was doing uh fingerboard get togethers, meetups, whatever you want to call it in like nineteen ninety eight, you know? So it's been a long time. That's wicked. Okay. I want to break this down a little bit more. Were you into skating at all when these tech decks came out or was it not really something of interest? You came about it because of your job. Oh no. Skateboarding was huge. You know, it's always been big, I guess, but the late nineties, it was really flourishing. And so, you know, I had a lot of friends who skated. I skated. I was terrible. I hurt myself. And that was also kind of the beginning of that whole, like film your friends doing stupid stuff kind of movement that Jack has kind of movement. So, you know, there's tapes somewhere somebody has in the world of a bunch of stupid teenage kids from Connecticut, you know, trying to skateboard and hurting themselves. So yeah, it was a big part of my life at that time. Okay, awesome. When it came to, like you said, doing the tech decks, and they had you learn tricks, how did you do that? Was there any source material for you to learn how to do anything? And do you remember exactly what you were doing at the time, like the type of tricks? Uh, so that's a great question. So at the time, tech deck put out some pro video. It's on YouTube, actually. It's actually a longer cut of it. It was like a 15-minute VHS tape. It was like Fingers of Fury, I think it was. And the VHS that they put out, if you spent a certain amount of money, you'd get this VHS tape. And that had like three different riders it featured on there. A guy from Canada and two dudes from France. Somebody else, I can't recall, but it's on YouTube right now. They were showing you the basics, you know, shove-its, ollies, things like that. And the fella from Canada, he showed you how to make your own ramps. And so I thought that was pretty interesting that Tech Deck would put that out because here they are, they're trying to push their, you know, bright plastic colored (laughs) obstacles and ramps. And there's this guy showing you how to make better ones with like 
thick cardboard and he had like little shrubbery and cement blocks. And I thought, wow, this is really cool. That's what really piqued my interest to try and replicate that and make my own thing. So that translated to me trying to figure out these tricks with a buddy of mine in Spanish class. Uh, So I went to this horrible high school. They called it suicide high because so many kids off themselves. It's really terrible. It's like section eight high school. There were like wires hanging out of the ceiling and the, the carpets were ripped up. So they didn't really care about our education. And I certainly didn't care about it. So I was sitting in Spanish class and they would have this Hispanic janitor come up from the middle school to teach us because they couldn't get teachers. And he didn't teach us Spanish. We just basically, he took illegal bets from children on World Cup soccer and we played tech deck. Yeah. So I would sit there with my buddy, Chris, playing tech deck and like betting on soccer games. You know, that was kind of my uh, sophomore year right there playing tech deck. (laughs) Okay, well, that's so steering away from the suicide high and the illegal bet taking Spanish janitorial custodian teacher guy. So this started this, you say it's in the late 90s when Tech Deck first came out. Where did it go from there? I mean, we're obviously in 2021. So it's been a little bit. Did you just keep hanging on to this little niche hobby? Or what happened? Great question. So after high school, you know, life goes on type deal. I became a chef for many years. And oh, one of my own people. Yeah, we are kindred spirits. So many, many years in and out of kitchens. And one day just happened to find an alt. So basically, this is we have such fancy gadgets and things that carry our tech deck or our fingerboards nowadays. But what I had done way back in the day was I took an Altoids mint container, those like tin mint containers, and you could fit two tech decks in there with like a tool and some extra wheels. And I just happened to find one in the back of a drawer one day and it had my two original tech decks in there. So this is probably circa 2008, nine, something like that. I was like, oh, I forgot all about these. Yeah. I can't believe I still have these. And that made me go down a rabbit hole. Tech Deck had come out with like the wooden versions at this point. And then that, you know, spirals into, you know, rabbit holes on the internet, what's available. And a few years later, I decided to start making my own products because what I wanted didn't exist. I tried my hand at deck making and I failed. It just, that's, there's so many better people out there. That's not what my strength is. So I'm a very creative person, I think. So I just decided to make things that I wanted that didn't exist. And that's sort of how vaudeville, you know, the origin story of vaudeville. Okay, awesome. There's a couple of things that I want to unpack there. So you came back 2008, 2009. Were you Googling or YouTubing tech deck slash fingerboarding at all and then discover how big it became? Like the quote unquote underground fingerboarding scene at the time? Or did you mainly stick with the more mainstream tech deck knowledge? Well, yeah, I had that base foundation of tech deck and I was really surprised at how much it had blown up. And, you know, that just kind of sufficed for me for a few years after that, just, you know, knowing that the scene was huge and there were, you know, a lot of cool things happening. I wasn't really inspired to do much. Plus, you know, working in kitchens, you work, you know, 60, 70, 80 hours a week. There's really no time for any of that. But when I transitioned away from kitchens, I started to have kind of a more normal work schedule with free time in the evenings and a social life. And that's really when the doors kind of opened where it had even grown from that 2008 era to the 2013-14 era where I started to put things out. So, and that's great. It's, you know, it's just, it's like a snowball. It keeps getting bigger and better. 
better. And, you know, that's kind of when I put my toe in the water around that 2013, 14 mark. Okay. You know, you, you say you think you're a pretty creative individual. I mean, anybody that looks at your Instagram for 20 seconds can tell that you're very creative and artistic as it is. And before we t- start touching into like the fingerboard side of things, I want to talk about miniatures because it seems I'm not too into miniatures besides fingerboarding. Um, I know my brother is and I have a lot of friends that are. It seems that you draw a lot of inspiration or also involved with miniatures when it comes to, you know, little figurines and whatever else. Yeah, you know, I I just try to find inspiration wherever you can. Miniatures... I do have a little bit of content on my Instagram about that. That's actually more of a recent kind of path I've gone down because of the pandemic and, you know, the way how the world is now awful. That whole 2020 being locked down, you know, just kind of, you know, maybe branch out into, you know, other ways to be creative and seeing so many YouTubers painting these little tiny figurines, you know, the wargaming scene. I don't know anything about it, to be quite honest with you. I like the lore. I like the stories. I like the artwork, but uh, I want to try my hand at it because it's such a small scale this like 28 millimeter scale it's i think it's really helped me improve and a lot of people ask me any advice on painting and i would say watch these guys i mean all you have to do is youtube mini war gaming warhammer painters and things like that and the techniques that they show you it's really just incredible anyone who doesn't think they can do it just spend an hour on youtube and you'll gain some confidence really quick so to answer your question i guess not such a long-winded answer the wargaming figurines and miniatures, that's sort of a newer interest of mine just to improve my painting skills. But I've always been a painter for, you know, as long as I can remember, you know, painting uh, canvas and things of that nature, you know, painting toys when I was a kid. And it's just something that, you know, I find relaxing. That's what I was about to ask, you know, listening to you talk, do you think it's more of you're a painter and everything that you do, it's just a different canvas for you to explore? a different medium to try and get your fix or your work out there? Yeah, great question. I'm really like a hobbyist. I have I have too many hobbies. <laughs> you know, I was a chef, like cooking for years. That is a great form of art, you know, musician, painter, you know, illustration, you know, anything creative. I just like, you know, it keeps me busy. So, you know, I like to dabble in things. And this is just something that a lot of other people have really, I guess, appreciated that I've done. You know, I've done lots of paintings and, you know, like I said, canvas paintings and, you know, I've had, you know, shown, you know, uh, some shows and things like that. And, you know, it's always good feedback. But I think with vaudeville specifically, that's really where so many more people have connected with what I've done. And it's flattering. Very appreciative of it. Awesome. Awesome. And I can just say as a follower of yours, too, it's just incredible. Because you showed the process from time to time as well on your story, just showing everything that you're putting out. And we can tell, I mean, we can see your workspace, all the paint that you have, your work area. It's just incredible incredible because we know that you're actually putting the work and the time and the effort into all of these things. I appreciate that. Yeah. You know, I don't hide what I do. If anyone wants to know what I'm doing, uh, you know, it's resin pouring. YouTube is such a great resource. You know, one day I just happened to stumble across like how to cast an action figure. And uh, I was like, wow, so that seems pretty simple. I feel like I could do that. And so I created something out of clay and I made a cast of it. And hey, this works. I can do that. And anyone can, you know, so you don't need me to tell you. I mean, anyone can, not you, not saying you, anyone listening, you know, they have to say a 
treasure chest of knowledge available to them on YouTube. So uh, happy to help uh, give tips of things that I've learned along the way doing it for years. Uh, it's all available. It's There's no secret. I'm not a 3D printer and I don't have any ill will against that. I, you know, it's just, I like to show what I'm doing because I'm not just pointing and clicking on a computer and I'm casting something, I'm making something, I'm painting it. There's a lot of it goes into what I'm doing. So I like to share that where I can, if people are interested in that, you know. Of course. And, you know, with my limited knowledge of casting and 3D printing, but I feel like when it comes to casting or pouring, it's more personal because you actually have to, in most cases, actually make a negative and you make it yourself by hand. And it always comes out cleaner and sharper. And I know with different 3D printing and things like that, I mean, we had the 3D blueprint guys a while back. They talk about how you get different lines and they're not always clean and whatever else. Yeah, I was listening to that. The different quality of printers and things of that nature. I'm not too familiar with the technology, but, you know, lower quality printers produce more layers. And those are those lines you see. I think I may be wrong, but that's, you know, when you like you said, you make a negative, whatever you cast is coming out and that will break down and degrade over time because the rubber mold, the heat from the resin uh, will break it down. So you only get a certain amount of pulls per rubber mold. Whereas with 3D printing, you can print and print. And I guess, you know, as long as you keep the build plate uh, clean, you can probably do it as many times as you'd like. But again, I don't know much about that. So don't take my heart for that. But, you know, in terms of the resin pouring, I can certainly answer lots of questions about that, you know. Of course. Oh, man. I'll get into that later. Going back to vaudeville, what did you get started with? I know you already said that you threw your hand at deck making and you didn't like it so much. It didn't work out or whatever else. When was it? What was the product? What was the knickknack that you made where you were like, okay, I got this. This is really cool. This is my thing. Yeah, great question. Like I said, I started with trying to make decks, but so many other people do it better. And I was just really terrible at trying to countersink the holes. And I'm not too precise when, you know, I just, I like to just do my thing. I wanted a nice fire hydrant. I didn't like any of the fire hydrants that existed. I thought they looked terrible and fake and just like a toy. And what I wanted didn't exist. So I said, well, I'm going to make what I want because I can do that. And I was pretty happy with the first hydrant I made. It was a kit hydrant, taking parts from this and that. And then I added the little eye hooks to it at the end and put a real chain on it. And it didn't exist. It, it, that was something definitely very new. And I was like, I, I think other people would like this. And so that's when I started playing with casting and resin pours and figuring that process out. And, you know, the very first one I made, I'm like, wow, this is the greatest thing I've ever done. Like, uh, it can't get any better than this. And then you know, years later, I look back and I'm embarrassed by it because it's like, Ugh, I thought that was good. But that's just the natural process. I shouldn't be embarrassed. And I'm not really, but you know what I'm trying to say. It's just the more you do something, the more you improve and you can look back and say, wow, like you can, it's easy to see the progression and it's very satisfying. So the very first thing I made was a hydrant. From there, then I was like, okay, now I'll do a newsstand because these are things that are in real life. Like, when I was, you know, a kid with my buddies just out, you know, in front of the comic book shop, like these things existed. We didn't have like a fancy skate park and, you know, Tony Hawk branded like tech deck ramps in real life. We had like street curbs and there was a fire hydrant and newsstands and there were dirty streets. And, you know, so I was like, I'm going to replicate that because that's probably a lot of people's experience. Awesome. So that's where you draw the inspiration for a lot of these miniatures, because I mean, looking at these fire hydrants and these newsstands, I mean, you're and you're still making them to this day. 
and you know pylon cones or the orange cones this stuff looks incredible you say when you started you thought it was like the greatest thing ever and, and you know you were on a roll and you look back on it and you're like what was i doing let me draw a little bit of my personal experience as a deck maker myself when i first started making decks it was not and i don't think anybody has ever had an experience making decks in the first couple ones it's like yeah i got this it's always like what the hell is that and where did i go wrong and how do i improve was there a lot of trial and error on your side as a maker? I mean, you say you're constantly improving, but was there ever a moment where you think you, besides the decks, where you did a cast or you did something and it was not to your liking and you're like, what went wrong here? How do I fix this? And all that other type of stuff. That's a good question. I think once I commit to something, I have to figure it out. I, I try to be real cerebral about my approach to things. And then that creative element just kind of kicks in and it finishes itself. It's like a songwriter. They always ask, where do those lyrics come from and once you get the first line down it just kind of pours out like magic and maybe that's a little cheesy analogy but that's how i feel when i get an idea for something i really try to put a lot of thought into it and then you know that kind of like unknown element helps to carry it across the finish line and i can say you know to be very specific one product i made that just i've never been happy with and i stopped making was the atm i like it but i didn't do a good job and that's the whole lines that you know every imperfection that you you start with on that original piece comes out in the end. And so I was excited about the ATM and I rushed it and I put it into production. And anybody who has one of those, it's it's good enough for me to sell. But looking back, it's one of those things where I wish I had taken a little bit more time to improve before I put the product out because I don't think anybody else has done an ATM, but that's one I would like to revisit for sure. You know, it's crazy listening to you talk about this. I'm on your Instagram right now and I'm looking at the ATMs and I can't see it. You know, I can't see what you're talking about in regards to imperfections or whatever else, but that's because as makers, it's kind of weird. And I've never talked about this particular feeling to anybody, but it's like having a finished product. When I hold one of my boards, I'm like, yeah, this is a fingerboard and it's cool, but I will always see it as the giant piece of veneer that I started with, with cutting it down. I will always see it as five pieces of veneer and some Gorilla Glue. And it's like, do you share that sentiment with your pieces as well? Or are you able to discern from what you started with to what you ended up with? Yeah, there's a big difference. You know, like I have some drawers of product that has no paint on it. It's just waiting for, you know, just inspiration for what I want to do with it. And I look at it and I say, this is so plain. Even many years later, I'm like, this is so plain. There's a, what am I going to do with this? And I'll begin to paint it. And it's like looking weird. And I'm thinking, you have to trust the process is where I'm going with this because until I put that very last coat of varnish on it, I'm kind of like almost second guessing. Even things I make regularly, like I have certain designs on the newsstands, for example, that you know I just don't want to make anymore, but people keep hounding me for, and I'm like, okay, I'll do it for you. And even then, it's like not until I put the grip tape on the bottom and it's sealed with varnish where I'm like, okay, this came out. I'm happy with this. There's always those steps where you have a hunk of plastic and then you have a finished painted, whatever you want to call it. You know, some people call it an obstacle. Some people call it an art. Jason from Level Up calls them articles, which is very kind of him. It's fun to see the transformation along the way. I can see it. It's an interesting journey, each and every piece. It's like you repeatedly make the same thing over and over again but you add a different stylistic touch and a different look to each one. I mean, they may start out as the same piece, but they all come out totally different from one another. How much time do you spend on making each individual piece? Like, do you think about, oh, I have to make this one look different from the last one and different from the last one? Or is it when you sit down to paint, 
you just go at it and you do whatever your mind tells you to do in that moment? Yeah, great question. I always start with a plan and then what the finished product is, is probably always, almost always different from the starting point. So a good example of that or anything really, everything is unique. So let's start with a hydrant. I like to do a white top with a colored body just because where I live, we have white tops and red bodies. Not everybody has those. When I worked in Manhattan, they were black bodies with silver tops or pink bodies with silver tops, depending on what borough you're in. So yeah, you have the skeleton right there of, let's say, a white top and a red body, but then the grime I put on it or the weathering, is there's never going to be one that's identical. It will be identical in the sense that it's red and white, but beyond that, sometimes I burn them with a tor- with a <laughs> with a creme brulee torch. Sometimes I don't. Sometimes I hit them with extra silver to you know show the quote metal, and sometimes I put too much dirt and grime. Sometimes not enough. It's and I don't mean like I'm messing up. I'm just saying you know each one is unique. So every piece that exists, everyone that owns one, that is truly one of a kind. So. When I do a design for the newsstands, like people love the Stoop Kid from Nickelodeon. I've done so many of those. And what keeps it interesting for me is I can put different graffiti on it. I can put different grime on it, or I can make it more clean. So a lot of the variations are just for my own enjoyment, to be quite honest with you. It keeps it fun for me. And, and each person gets something unique. And that's important to me. Of course, it's incredible. You can tell that no two will ever be alike. To get a little bit more specific on one piece you did that I enjoyed a lot, it's the little newsstand and it's the Ghostbusters one that you did. And it has a little proton pack on the back. And this thing is incredibly intricate. Is that something that you made? Did you pull it off something else? If you don't mind me asking. No, absolutely. So my thought was, I have a friend who's really into Ghostbusters. His name's Chris. And there's like the New England Ghostbusters. Like they have like a firehouse and they go to comic cons and they build proton packs. And that was kind of the inspiration for that newsstand. And I thought, okay, I'm making newsstands. How can I make this like just a little more unique? And I thought, okay, well, it's Ghostbusters. I'll put a proton pack on there. How can I do that? So I went on eBay and I found a cheap used opened out of the box Ray figure, which not my favorite Ghostbuster. So I don't care if I break it and whatnot. So I broke the proton pack off of his back, chucked him, or I used him actually for, for I, I, he's in one of the early promo shots for it that I did. He's long since, you know, found his way into the dumpster. But I took that proton pack. I made a mold of it. I can't, that's not something I could do. That's something that could be 3D printed easily. But for me, it's like, oh, just buy one for five dollars on ebay and make a mold of it you know and so i made a mold of that and then i painted it that's all hand painted because it comes out solid white so i painted it and i you know put it on the back of the uh, newsstand now newsstands don't have proton packs but it's a theme it's just to try to make it different and fun and that evolves to oh maybe i'll put some ecto slime on this one and um then that evolves to I'll make the ecto slime glow in the dark. And there's just this weird evolution of everything. So now when I make them, they have a proton pack and they have ecto slime and they glow in the dark because that's a very Ghostbusters thing, you know? So, and there's two versions of that. The first one I did was, I think, I think, and now I can't remember, but I did like a brown and black to replicate their uniform. And that's why I put the proton pack on the back because it's like, oh, that's their uniform. And then I'm like, ah, it's, uh, 
I'm going to do something different. I want to do the Ecto-1, you know? And so that's why it's like red and white and has the hazard stripes. And maybe that'll evolve into something else someday. I don't know. But that's a fun one to make. And now it's Halloween. So I keep getting all these DMs like, are you going to make it again? Are you going to make it again? And <laughs> they always want it when it sells out, you know? So I'm like, uh, I'll try. I'll try. I'm looking through your Instagram right now as you're talking about this and where you draw inspiration and put them into these things to make them all unique. And I don't know why I'm just noticing one of your Mr. Orange little newsstands. Are you a Tarantino fan? I am. I'm a big fan of his films. To be quite honest with you, my favorite film of his and one of my favorite films, Death Proof. Now, I know Death Proof gets a lot of flack. They say it's his worst film. I disagree. I'm also a big car guy. I used to have a, a 70 Nova, which is the first car Stuntman Mike uses in the film with a skull on the hood. I had that car. Mine was yellow, unfortunately. But for some reason, when that movie came out, I connected with it. I like the dialogue, and, and I'm a huge Kurt Russell fan. So, yeah, I like Tarantino. I like all of his movies. But for some reason, I like Death Proof a lot. And and I couldn't really think of a headline for Death Proof. And it doesn't have a big following as like, yeah. you know, Pulp Fiction or Reservoir Dogs or something. And Reservoir Dogs is just a terrific film. So I figured, oh, I made a black stand in orange. And I'm like, what am I going to do with a black stand? I don't want to do a Halloween one because I always do like some Halloween themed stuff. And it was too early. So I'm like, oh, Mr. Orange. I don't know why that popped into my head. So I created a fake news headline for a fake, you know, story. Undercover Cops Lane, or I forget what the headline is. And, and I blood splattered it, and people like that one. And it makes me happy to make that and make other people happy with it, you know? That's incredible. I mean, just all these little Easter eggs and these nuances that you can really have fun with in creating all these these things. I mean, I'm getting excited just thinking about it in the process from a creative point of view and what else you can implement and all that type of stuff. Yeah, that makes me happy, you know? It's like, even if no one ever even buys one, as long as they can look at it and they say, wow, that's really cool, like, that's cool. You know, that makes me happy to, you know, it's like a comedian. It's like you can make someone laugh, but can you make them smile or whatever the quote is? I don't know. It's like as a creator, even if they don't buy it, as long as they like it, that's a win for the maker, I think. So, you know, happy to spread that kind of happiness to others, you know? Of course. Of course. Yeah. I mean, this stuff is just so awesome. I can't stop looking at it. How long does it take you? Let's say, for example, your fire hydrants, because everybody loves your fire hydrants. I mean, you, I think you may have the best ones in the game. I appreciate that. How long does it take from start to finish to produce one fire hydrant? Sure. So let's say I have the mold already made. It's not broken down. I don't have to recast a master. I'm ready to pour a hydrant. So I level, you know, I have my mold on the table. I do my equal parts resin. And depending on the temperature on a hot day, it will cure in five minutes. On a cold day, it could be 15, 20 minutes. So let's split the difference. Let's say 12 minutes, it's hard. <laughs> That's what she said, right? <laughs> stupid joke. It's so stupid. It's like, you know, this joke from 2005, you know, like terrible. Uh, so the, the, the resin cures, it's fully hard. You take it out of the mold and then it needs to be cleaned with a razor. It's called flash. So 
where you remove the piece, you know, resin will try to seep out and dry. So you have to clean it up a bit. You clean off that flash. So there you got 12 minutes to mold, two minutes to clean the flash. And then it's a matter of what color am I going to do? If it's a white hydrant, I'll be done in 20 minutes, you know, because I don't have to paint anything other than the grime. A red one, that's a couple coats of red over the white. You can do pigments, but it, that's kind of a pain to measure because you can't see at the bottom of it, you know. So I guess let's say start to finish on average for a red and white hydrant you're looking at if i'm rushing 30 35 minutes if i'm taking my time and i'm really really trying to like put in like a lot of time on it it could take an hour so that's kind of my achilles heel i take way too long to do these things for the price point but it's not really about the price it's about you know putting something i'm proud of so if it takes 35 minutes great if it takes an hour awesome you know the newsstands the big newsstands the deluxe those take a while so I'm happy to do it, you know, because it's peace of mind for me. It's It allows me to relax. It allows me to be creative. And, you know, and if someone buys it, that's even better, you know? Of course. You say you take too long to on one of these. Is it you trying to perfect something that is obviously imperfect and just trying to get it exactly right in your mind that really holds you, I don't want to say holds you back, but ties you up and causes you to spend more time on one of these? Yeah, part of it is, you know, I think of something new almost every time I do something, so I'll have to stop. So a good example of that is the Drive newsstand. People really like that one. It's kind of a culty movie. I like the soundtrack, and I like the movie too, but the first one I made was like, how can I make this different? And I got a little doll house hammer because if you've seen the movie he you know the hammers part is very iconic for that movie so i put a hammer on top and then as i was painting it i'm like well instead of graffiti what other elements of that movie could i do and i'm like oh i'll put like you know when you go down the street you see like flyers and advertisements for food or whatever you see so i'm like oh nino's pizza i'll get a nino's pizza menu and i'll put that on there and then oh the movie ends at the great wall this chinese food restaurant i'll put one of those menus. so then i have to stop and then I have to go play in the computer and make like fake menus for these things and then print them out. And so it'll take me too long because I think of other things that I want to add to it just to enhance the piece, you know? So that's, that's part of it taking too long because I could be done with it, but then I think of something else and I want to add to it that I think will make it better. And sometimes I have to say, okay, that's enough. Like, this is really good someone is going to enjoy this. I kind of fall into that with, I made a bunch of Blade Runner ones. That's another kind of quirky movie with a cult following. I made it because I enjoyed it and it literally sold in like less than five minutes. I couldn't believe it. So that's one of those ones I play with all the time because that movie has so much iconic imagery and advertising and that one's always evolving. I've done a couple versions of that. No one is alike because, you know, you can just draw from that movie, you know, you can continue to draw from that and do something new each time so i'm sorry if i'm long-winded with my answers no 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 not at all not at all you are the epitome of a perfect guest because i'll tell you people tune into this podcast not for me they want to listen to the individuals that we bring on do you do custom orders for your products or is it more of what you want to do oh it's i'd say a 50 50 split i've done so many it's so funny i just did one not too long ago someone in florida worked for a newspaper and their boss was retiring and they're like hey will you do a custom newsstand for them so i did like a small and a large custom newsstand of what's his face was retiring after 40 years or whatever 
there's been a lot of that type of things that I don't even post because it's so personal to the buyer. Like this is a real person that his picture is on there. I'm not going to ever post that because, you know, I don't know who he is, you know, and it's just a personal thing. So there are things like that. Happy to do customs if it's within my realm of ability and I work with people for sure. You know, we've talked a lot about the products that you're currently doing. I want to ask you, is there anything that you have in the works that you've been just tinkering around with any new type of cast, any new type of product that you'd like to share? If not, I understand. Or if you don't have anything, of course, there's nothing to share. Right now, I'm trying to revisit the fountain. What I want to do is figure out how to do that quicker. Basically, I made about... two, four, six, eight, ten, about 10 fountains, the Beethoven fountains. That's something that I've been working on for many years. I have this old picture of like the very first Beethoven fountain I made on an old park from many years ago. It was so tiny and dinky, but I'm like, I want to make this like, like a centerpiece to a park. So I made this big concrete wishing fountain. There's like coins in the bottom. It's got clear resin that looks like water. It's this moss covered, you know, antique bronze or marble depending on what version people got of beethoven in the center it's got little side kickers that is a product it's heavy so it means it's expensive to ship and i want to figure out how to make it cheaper so i don't have to sell it for 75 bucks which to be quite honest with you that's like way too cheap to begin with but i understand people we all have budgets and i don't want to put something out there that's grossly overpriced so you know i'm okay with taking a hit on it if someone's going to enjoy it so i want to figure out and i'm trying to figure out how to produce that piece so that it has a lower price point and i can make them quicker so in addition to making everything I make now, I want to try to reintroduce that because I'm so proud of how that came out. And the people who bought one love it. And I got to get that nailed down. Man, that's awesome. I can't wait to see when you're done with it. I mean, the last one that you posted on your Instagram, I mean, the thing looks incredible. That's really where you're transcending, transcending, excuse me, past fingerboarding or anything else, because it's a piece of art. You know, for example, like Salvador Dali, a very famous painter. I mean, he used to cast a lot of his sculptures and resell them because he would want to get as many out there as he could. And I find a lot of similarities into what you're doing as well. Well, that's a very generous compliment. Thank you. I don't have the facial hair Salvador Dali had, but we can all appreciate that. That's for sure. You know, I wouldn't put myself on that kind of a level. I'm just trying to have fun. But I will say that the Beethoven fountain is something that I'm really proud of because like you said, it does, I think it doesn't have to be a fingerboard piece. That could sit, you know, on a shelf or something because it's heavy, it's concrete, it's got clear, I mean, you know, it kind of covers a lot of ground. It doesn't have to be relegated to just fingerboarding. So it's a lot of fun to make. It's a labor of love. It's not easy. So that's, you know, I want to figure out how I can make that faster and get it at a better price point so more people can enjoy it. That's incredible. I mean, the fact that you're thinking about the end consumer as well, just trying to make it fair, especially. I mean, I'm looking at that piece and $75 is not enough. I mean, just to understand the amount of work that you put into them, but you also want to be fair to the end buyer as well. Right. Like you say, it's not about the money. It's not. You know, last couple of questions for you here. Mm -hmm. Out of all the products that you've made, 
Is there any one in particular that sticks out to you the most? Maybe you own it, maybe you don't, that you made and you were like, this was one of my favorite pieces, like the first thing that comes to mind. Mm, I think the first thing that comes to mind will always be the hydrant, just because that was the first product that I put out. Like, this is something that I produced and I painted and... Here it is. This is what I can do. This is what I can offer to the community. Too many people, I think, put products into the community that don't belong there. And I'm not trying to bash anybody or name names. It's just they're not around anymore is all I'm saying. And when you put a poor product out, people know it. So I've always tried to avoid doing that. And I think the hydrant has just always been, I guess, my bread and butter. You know, it's the first thing I did. It's my favorite thing and, you know, will be the last thing I do. That's awesome. Okay. Now, is there a favorite piece of fingerboarding gear that you own that in your personal collection, whether it's something of yours or another brand, is there that one item where you're like, okay, this is really cool and it's my prized possession? Mm. You know, I thought about this and I think it's so hard to narrow just one thing down. I'll narrow it down to two things just because I can't do it. I can't, you know, (laughs) the first thing I have a crazy lake concrete pool that I had imported from Germany. First, it's just a beautiful piece of art. It was my coffee table for many years at one of my old apartments. You know, there aren't very many in the world. If you have one, you know, hang on to it. You know, I've tried to sell mine in the past just because of, you know, condensing and moving in different apartments and things, but I'm so glad I never got rid of it because it's just a beautiful piece of art. And also it's something a little smaller, more manageable, a KL bench. I don't know who made that KL, maybe a company. I don't know. It's a red wooden bench called a KL bench and it's solid. It's the most solid bench I've ever used. It's so worn down because I've used it for, (laughs) I've been using it for years. It's in rough shape. I'll never get rid of that. And they make a curved one. If anyone has a curved KL bench, I want that. So hit me up. I will pay you. I will trade. I want the curved one, but I have the regular park bench. Whoever made it, I don't know, but it's beautiful. Awesome. Yeah. And if anybody has any knowledge as to who could have made this bench, please let one of us know. Please. Yeah. I'll post a picture on my Instagram to reference. Whenever this comes out, I'll post it and be like, this is what I'm talking. People who know probably know what I'm talking about, but it has like a lightning bolt engraved into the feet, like laser cut out in the feet of the, I don't know. I think it was from Flatface, but I don't know who did it, but they don't make them anymore. I haven't seen them for years, but I'll put an Instagram picture of it so people know what I'm talking about. Good. Okay. So last question, you know, because all good things must come to an end and I've had so much fun in this conversation. You've already given so much knowledge and so much wisdom and so much advice and you've listened to the podcast. I think you know where I'm going with this. What would you tell for the next generation of makers and builders and painters who look up to vaudeville and you for inspiration? What's the one piece of advice that you would give them? Well, advice in terms of improving the skill, I would say that's a very generic just practice because practice makes perfect. If you want to start putting products out and, you know, presenting something and adding to the community in that aspect, you know, fingerboarding, (laughs) it's a very odd thing. When you begin to get good at it and you see more and more of what is out there. Sometimes a voice in your head says, hey, you know, I want to make something to put it on Big Cartel. And then you start talking to yourself and convince yourself that that's a good idea, that you can do that. And most of the time what happens is someone puts out a very horrible deck or a very horrible product and people can recognize that. And so when it doesn't work out for that person, they get bitter and they leave the community and they give up on fingerboarding. And I don't think that's a good thing. 
So my advice, that being said, is to realize that roughly 2% of people become successful at doing something, whether that's chasing a dream or putting something out there, 2% of you are going to succeed. So my advice is to give up before you start. Embrace the harsh reality of failure and focus on enjoying the hobby so you don't get burned out or pissed or bitter. And then you can focus on like a real job, like get one with a pension. That would be great, you know? Nobody ever told me that, get a pension. And some people would say, well, that's really mean. That's harsh advice. But if you think about it, think about what I just said. 2% of people are gonna be successful. So 2% of people are gonna say, screw you, Johnny. I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna be successful. And they're gonna prove me right. And 98% of people are gonna say, screw you. I'm either gonna do this or I'm not. And they're gonna prove me right, right? I'm just saying that. 2% of people are going to succeed no matter what I say, and 98% of people are going to fail no matter what I say. Don't do it. Just enjoy the hobby. And the 2% of you that are going to pursue and succeed, they don't need me to tell them. Man, the wisest words of wisdom from an individual that did exactly what you just said. And I don't think I failed nor succeeded. It's just something that... No, you, you succeeded. You are succeeding for sure. Absolutely. Anyone listening to this knows that. So be proud of your achievements because they are worth being proud of. I appreciate that. You're so right in a way of, I know so many people that have tried to start up their own businesses and, and do their own thing. And, you know, when it doesn't work out, they quit the hobby as a whole and they don't want to come back to it because they're butt hurt or whatever else. And that's very true. And it's harsh, not harsh, but yeah, just stop before you start type of thing. Just enjoy the hobby. Just, just have fun. Just have fun. That's all. And, you know, I found myself when I was running the shop full time and I was making decks full time and I was doing different things, I found myself wanting to fingerboard less and less. And that was like, that's bad. That is not good. It's, it's actually taking the enjoyment away from what I like to do. That's right. You got to remember to keep the balance with all things in life, but certainly with hobbies. And if you turn that hobby into like a side hustle, it's so easy to get burned out and bummed out. You got to maintain a healthy balance with all things in life. Of course, like Mr. Miyagi says. That's right. You know, fingerboarding, you know, you're a food guy, you know. The thing is, decks, you have to have a deck, you know? And so fingerboarding is like a chicken Caesar salad, okay? It's appealing to so many people. It's not dangerous. It's enjoyable. The deck is your chicken. Okay, so you have to have a good piece of chicken. You have to have a good deck. You make a good deck, right? I'm sure you grill a great piece of chicken too. The salad, right? You've got the dressing, the lettuce, and the cheese. These are all components of a fingerboard, you know? Anyway, I'll go down. Don't, don't talk about the chicken Caesar salad. <laughs> fingerboarding is nothing like a chicken Caesar salad, to be quite honest with you. <laughs> I don't remember where I was going with that. but I think you were going to go with there's different components, but if you don't have a solid base to begin with, I mean, what's the point? Johnny, it's been so much fun talking to you, man. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on the show again. Oh, not at all. My pleasure is all on this side. So thanks again. Until the next one, I'm going to be so excited and I'm so excited to see what you're going to be putting out and what you're going to be working on. And, you know, I just know whatever you do and whatever you touch, it's going to be gold. Likewise, that's a ditto right across the board. So good things for both of us and everyone listening. Of course. All right. You know, man, until the next one, stay safe. And again, I can't thank you enough. Bye, con Diaz. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Finger Space Podcast. Thanks for skating by. And don't forget to nosebonk that subscribe button and dark slide on over to our Discord server. This episode was produced by Fingerspace Co. and hosted by Nostalgia FB. Big thanks to all guests and listeners.